Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. It's Wednesday, September 17th, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. All right, here's the story, the subject. That's not that important. It's the line we got to get to, but I'll set it up. It's about how uh, the current mayor, Bill de Blasio, not giving credit, a lot of credit, to the former mayor, Michael Bloomberg. Howard Wolfson, he was Bloomberg's guy. He was pretty pleased that there was at least one video that showed some things that uh, Bloomberg had done. And he tweeted that out or made a message. And here's the sentence. Asked about Mr. Wolfson's message, Peter Ragone, senior advisor to Mr. de Blasio, emailed a smiley face. Yep. So here's the new job in media. We don't need to hire a communications specialist. We don't need to hire a spokesman. We need an emodiman. Sorry, an emoji person. Like in this made-up story, when asked for comment on the Republican plan to zero out funding, Democratic emote person Adam Gentleson responded with colon P, obviously a reference to the subsection of the original entitlement, which describes an ongoing funding mechanism for the procedure. Correction. A previous edition did not realize that colon P refers to a tongue sticking out in emoticon form. We regret the error. M, open parentheses, underscore, underscore, close parentheses, M. Update to the correction. A previous edition contained the M, open parentheses, underscore, underscore, close parentheses, M. We heard that in Japanese, this indicates an apology. The M's are supposed to be someone bowing. However, it was revealed that several readers mistook this for a hippo attempting a push-up. This was not our intent. We regret the error. Here is an emoji of a kitten crying. Also, editor's note, I'm quitting the newspaper corrections business. And while this experience has forced me to endure a a less than forward slash three or broken heart, in the future, I'm sure I will be colon dash close brackets or very happy. In the show today, comedian Jen Kirkman doesn't want to have kids. She doesn't want to talk about it, but we're going to ask about it. If she didn't really want to talk about it, she shouldn't have written the book on the subject. No, she'll talk about it. That's fine. In the spiel, we'll do a little quiz about the MacArthur Fellows. Don't have to be a genius to pass the quiz, but if you do, you could earn $625,000. But first, Scotland, independence, the flag angle. Tomorrow, Scotland will vote. Independence or union. It is a yes-no vote that will define the history of the country for 307 years. It has been a part of the United Kingdom. So many issues at stake. Nuclear arms, the economy, oil in the North Sea. But of course, most importantly, flags. Probably not Scotland's flag, but maybe the Union Jack the flag of the United Kingdom. Joining me now is Ted Kay, a former executive with NAVA, the North American Vexillological Association. He was also the editor of its scholarly journal. You might know it as The Raven. Hello, Ted. Yes. Do we have the jingle? Jingle. Come on. Let's go. (laughs) Andrea loves when she has to do the jingle. Fun, 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 vexillology. 
corner. Good pause. I like that. So, Ted, am I right? Is there any inclination that Scotland, should it become uh, an independent country, would drop its flag? Scotland has a flag, so Scotland would not drop a flag. Scotland's flag is the St. Andrew's Cross, which is a blue flag with a white X on it, a white St. Andrew's Cross on it. And this is called the Saltier? Yes. So the flag of the United Kingdom, we know it from, if nothing else, the Who's logo. Where does Scotland show up in that? Just in the blue? The... Union Jack, or Union Flag, is the combination of three flags, and the Scottish flag, as part of the Union Jack, is not only the blue background, but the white X on which there are red bars on top. The other two flags, one is the flag of England, which is the... the what? It's St. George's Cross is the flag of England. And the best way to think about the Union flag is it's the combination of the three flags of England, Scotland, and a flag representing Ireland. The first flag is the St. George's Cross, the patron saint of England, which is a white background with a red cross that's like a big plus sign. And then behind that is St. Andrew's Cross, which is the blue background with a white X. Those three flags, a red plus sign, a white X, and a red X are all combined in very strict heraldic terms to create the Union flag. And what about Wales? They have such a lovely dragon on their flag, but it doesn't show up on the Union Jack. Wales is a part of England. Wales is a principality of England, so it's technically a subset from, in heraldic terms of England, so it doesn't get its own representation on the Union flag. I got it. Brief diversion on the Wales flag, the Welch flag. I love it. Dragon facing left. I think that's Dexter in heraldic terms. But I know you have rules for what makes a great flag. The only thing going against the dragon is it would be very hard for a third grader to draw that from memory. Is the Wales flag a great flag in your estimation? I think it's still a pretty good flag because a third grader could create some kind of representation of the dragon and show that it's a dragon. A short story, when my son was four, a flag friend of mine did a demonstration lecture to his preschool class about flags, and my son was really up to speed on flags, and when he got to the Welsh flag, he pulls it out of the box and shows it to the little kids, and my son says, Wales. And his little friends say, no, that's, that's a dragon. <laughs> what do you know? It's, those aren't Wales. Yeah, exactly. I had those similar thoughts when I heard uh, Prince Charles identified as the Prince of Wales. Like, what can, is he like Aquaman? I said that. <laughs> so over there in England, in the United Kingdom, there is something called the College of Arms, which is the official register for flags, coats of arms, and pedigrees for the crown. It's uh, responsible for designing the flag. Now, they won't comment, but within flag circles, so within those rectangular circles, what is the buzz? (laughs) There's a lot of discussion. I just received the latest issue of Flagmaster, the journal of the Flag Institute in the United Kingdom, and there's a whole discussion on the Union flag and Scottish independence, and many people have weighed in on their thoughts about it. I think there are two Two camps, two obvious camps. The first is 
If Scotland pulls out of the United Kingdom, then the Scottish representation should be pulled out of the Union flag. The other camp is this is a traditional symbol of the United Kingdom. It's a brand. It's a flag that has served the country for almost 300 years. Therefore, even though there have been changes in the makeup of the country, the symbol can remain the same. There is some talk that the flag, the Union Jack, was, well, I've seen it described as a bit of a dog's dinner, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and not exactly super official. So there is some logic that you could just keep the old flag, or why not use the opportunity to throw some green from the Welch flag in there? What do you think of those suggestions? One of the strains of things should change is to reflect Wales, even though it is a principality of England. It is effectively a major part of the United Kingdom. And there are two ways to represent Wales. One is to incorporate some symbols from the Welsh flag, which is white and green with a red dragon on it. The other is to include the cross of St. David, who Mm -hmm. is the patron saint of Wales, uh, which is a yellow flag with a black cross on it, and incorporate that in some way. This is a discussion that vexillographers, people who design flags, are all excited about. (laughs) But I predict that all of it will come to naught, and no matter what happens with the Scottish vote, the Union flag, the Union Jack, will stay the same. And according to The Guardian, who quotes some constitutional experts, they say the current flag represents a union of crowns, not nations, and the Queen would likely remain the monarch of an independent Scotland, as, you know, with Canada. So there would be no constitutional reason to stop flying the current Union Jack, to which I'd also add, as iconography, it's very identifiable. That's a, that's a very powerful argument. Yeah. There's also an interesting downstream discussion about the dozens of flags in the world that have the Union flag as a component of them, most prominent being Australia and New Zealand, but even the state of Hawaii. Those flags all have the Union flag as it exists now in the upper left-hand corner. And what happens to those? Well, what happened when they uh, uh, amended the flag all those years ago? Did the sub-flags change also? Uh, well, none I of those... I call them the sub-flags, um, but yeah. I don't know what none of those entities had flags of their own in 1801. Got it. But certainly the flags that were derived from the Union Jack at the time did indeed add a, a changed Union Jack. Right, and one of my favorites of those flags is the flag of the uh, Grand Caymans, which has the Union Jack in the uh, upper left-hand corner, and then a crest that's not too distinguished. There's a lion, but atop that crest is a turtle, because that is the symbol of the Grand Cayman. He's just, like, hanging around, looking at things. That's a, a very standard design of British colonial holdings, where there would be a badge in the fly end of the flag, a blue field with the Union Jack in the upper left and a badge in the central right part. And those badges can be very distinctive and fun, as you described. So vote carefully, Scotland. A lot's riding on it more than your independence. <laughs> it's the Union flag as well. That's right. Thank you, Ted Kay. He joins us on our now recurring segment, Vexillology Corner. Thank you, Ted. Thank you. And on Facebook.com slash SlateGist, we have pictures of all these flags, fake flags, could-be flags, aspiring flags. 
Jen Kirkman is a stand-up comedian. How stand-up is she? Well, on her website, she announced that she added a second show in Winnipeg on September 25th at the Park Theater. I mean, she's one of these adding a second show in Winnipeg type comedians. She's also the author of a new book called I Can Barely Take Care of Myself, Tales from a Happy Life Without Kids. Here she is. Hello, Jen. Hi. And since I'm such a, um, I can't, I can't take hype at all. I'm yeah. going to tell you the truth about Winnipeg. Yeah. Tell me the truth about Winnipeg. When they booked me, they asked me to book me for two shows. And I said, well, I don't know how many fans I have there. And, you know, there'll be some people at the early show, some people at the late, and it'll be two half full shows. Let's just put one show. And then if I sell out, we can add a second and it'll look like a really big deal. Right. So I should probably be a publicist. Well, you know, Canadians are more polite, and in Canadian circles, asking someone to go to Winnipeg is actually kind of an insult. So that might <laughs> That's be That's actually one true. <laughs> yeah. So I want to uh, talk about comedy and talk about your book, but let's talk about Joan Rivers, because the last, last podcast I listened to, you know, you talk so much about, I think you called it just about the greatest moment of your life when you did a show with her. Yeah, I know that's sad because I've been married before, but I guess since it didn't work out, then I guess that wouldn't have been the great. But I swear to you, even if I was still married, that night would have topped right. my wedding day. And that's um, maybe why you're not still married. <laughs> probably because my priorities are totally out of whack. But yeah, it was. I got to share. She did this really small show with me at Largo, this club in LA, and she hadn't performed there before. And uh she wanted to introduce me. She didn't want to make it about her and make it this big, you know, she's headlining kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So she came out on stage and she was really generous with her time. I mean, she had just filmed, I think, Fashion Police that day and she was getting on a plane at 11 at night and the show was at 8.30. So she ran in, did some time up front and then ran to catch a plane and she fit all that in for me and she's 81. I wouldn't, if I have to go to two shows in one night, I always cancel the second one. I'm like, I'm tired. It's 10. <laughs> so I'm always, always amazed at her energy. So other than the fact that she's gracious to you and an icon, and this is one of those other than the facts that's a little loaded. So she's gracious. She's an icon. She's genuinely funny. She's so hardworking. Is there a style of comedy and ownership of maybe like feminism that you related to with Jones comedy? I realized it, but didn't, wasn't thinking about it on a day-to-day -day level when she was still alive, which was when she started doing comedy, you had your Bill Cosby's and your, and your Woody Allen's and, and your Dick Cavett's, and they're all different, and they tell stories, and some of them just do jokes, but all those kids, you know, when they were kids, when they were coming up, the style of comedy that was popular before them was the very vaudevillian white guys telling jokes, take my wife, please, my wife sucks, she can't cook, you know, all that kind of stuff. So even though the people that... Joan came up with, like Lenny Bruce and Bill Cosby and all that, even though their styles broke from that old tradition, Jones was the only woman whose style broke from that tradition. And unlike some of her peers, she would improvise on stage and add tags to jokes in the moment and interact with the audience, you know, always, even when she guest hosted the tonight show, if you go back and look at the clips, she's the only host of any late night show she's talking to the audience. She's sitting right up in front of them and talking to women in the front row. Because of her, that was just a thing that was acceptable to do. So that was one of the many options in the comedy buffet that as comics, we all visit. So this is going to sound like I'm making a lame pun. I'm not. As you describe that, it strikes me that what she's doing, her styling, how she positions herself, literally, she's leaning in. 
And and the reason that that's a phrase is because, you know, it's a female communication style. Absolutely. And literally, and it's not a pun, and you're totally right. Yeah. Let, let me talk about I could barely take care of myself. Tales from a happy life without kids. Does it strike you as odd that the default setting would be to uh, ask you about this or wonder about this or just assume that kids? I mean, if you take a step back, it is kind of odd that we assume that everyone's procreating. The book would not exist if people had reacted normally to me when they asked, do you want kids? And I said, no, (laughs) then I would have no book because I was just irate for so many years that once I got to a certain age and people asked me that they wouldn't, I would say no. And then they would keep talking about it. So I found I would have the worst time at every dinner party, every cocktail party, every gathering. I never got to like have nice conversations with people. I would spend the whole time defending myself or thwarting well, you'll die alone or no one will take care of you or you're selfish or, you know, all that kind of thing. And I think it's weird that people assume everyone's procreating, but even weirder that people assume a female comic who works seven days a week, who lives in LA. Yeah. Maybe that person is the one that you can kind of go, Oh, I can kind of see that she doesn't have kids. She has an unconventional life. Like I was shocked how many times in Los Angeles, other people asked me about it. And I was like, isn't this where all the weird people live? Why are you asking me questions that not even my family in Massachusetts asked me? Right. And also another side of it to, uh, if people want to take a demographic shortcut, maybe they should say for those reasons you just laid out, you know what? Maybe the hypothetical next generation should thank you for not having kids. If that is your attitude and this is your lifestyle? Well, my kid would be a mess. I would never see them. And I would be so stressed out when I did that if they asked for their basic needs to be met, I would be like, Oh my God. You know, it's like, it's no, (laughs) I am not emotionally capable. Right. And also people in your milieu, it's not like you're hanging out with a bunch of Mormons or Hasidics who feel they have to get to nine or 10 to get into heaven. Right. I mean, these are probably (laughs) people who like stress out about the world's resources. And yet if you say, well, I'm going to help out by not having a kid. Yeah, they attack. Well, I had a friend who said to me, you know, I used to not want to have a kid because of global warming and all of the problems in the world and the resources are, are stretched, but maybe my kid will have a solution. And I didn't say it to her face, but I used to have a joke in my act where I'm like, there is a solution. Al Gore told us what it was and people (laughs) called him a loser (laughs) and they're not listening. I'm like, no one is listening to your baby who would have to have the solution. You know, it would be not 20, it'd be 20 more years before your baby speaks up with the solution possibly best case scenario. So we're already past the tipping point. So, you know, I just want my friends to go, Hey, you know what? I decided to respond to my most basic calling and hormones. I mean, it's okay to have kids. It's totally actually how most people are wired. So do you think you have child blindness or does the rest of the world have child hypersensitivity? What's child blindness and what's child hypersensitivity? I I heard you in an interview saying that you don't even notice children. Like if a child was here, you might not even see Oh yeah, you're right. (laughs) I did say that. I really don't. And I have friends who don't want kids, but they're like, oh, I love kids. And I'm like, I don't hate them. And I'm, I'm very charitable with children's charities and my heart breaks if anything happens to a kid. But other than that, if I'm sitting and having coffee and a cute kid walks by, I don't notice. It would have to be a little girl with like a fake fur coat, like a big fashion statement kind of little kid for me to notice. Like I I saw a girl at the airport with a really expensive suitcase, but it was like the toddler version. And I was like, that's cool. But that's it. That's the only time I've really noticed a child and been like, oh, look at that. I want to ask you one more thing, Jen, and it's about kids. You know, 
You were born in the 70s, as was I. Jennifer, number one most popular name. Yes, in 1974, the year I was born. Me too, a couple years earlier. Jennifer, in the 80s, second most popular name. You track it. In the 90s, went down to 16. I don't know if you know this. The last year I have statistics for, 2012, it was the 163rd most popular name. So if you had a kid, which you're never going to have, would you name her Jennifer Jr.? <laughs> Of course I would. There can't be. If I have a kid, it's for the sole purpose of making another me. So I will blatantly name her. Jen, it would be Jen Jr. Kirkman. All right. Jen Kirkman, stand-up comic, author of I Can Barely Take Care of Myself, Tales from a Happy Life Without Kids. I think the takeaway from this whole thing is second show in Winnipeg, people. Get on that. Thank you, Jen. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> And now the spiel. You can't apply. There is no shortlist. You do not even know that you're being considered. Skull and Bones, the Illuminati, People's Sexiest Man competition. No, no, and Jared Leto. I'm just guessing. No, I'm talking about a MacArthur Fellowship. The MacArthur Genius Grants, so-called. 23 honorees were told yesterday, and now the world is being told about them. Here's 600-some-odd thousand dollars. Do what you want. You're geniuses. In the past, Jad Abumrad and Dan Jarofsky have been Genius Grant recipients, just naming a former and upcoming guest on The Gist. So what I'm going to do now is we're going to debut the newest, hottest game show based around MacArthur Genius Grant winners. It's called Find the Foe Fellow, forthwith. Little theme music, please, Andrea. And joining us now for Find the Foe Fellow Forthwith is Andrea Salenzi. She's a homemaker from Brooklyn, New York. Andrea, tell us a little bit about yourself. Homemaker? I don't know. That's what they always say on game shows. I produce this podcast, yeah, sir. Yeah, I've read, the, I've read the credits. They say a lot of things about you that aren't true. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the bio of several MacArthur Genius Fellows, ones who were just named, and there'll be one fake one in the mix. Do you think you can find the fake fellow forthwith? Oh, God. I'll try. All right. Paul Basha. For years, Dr. Basha has championed the use of integrative neuroregenerative techniques in association with eye surgery, a trained ophthalmologist earning a degree from Western Eye Hospital in London. Basha began to apply principles of cognition and neuropathway development in actually training the blind to look upon the world anew. Upon repair of physical damage, patients are exposed to imagery and training, which more successfully orients them to a visually dominated world. He has founded a think tank and works with both rural populations and those wounded in war zones, Paul Basha, Bowling Green, Kentucky. All right, next one. Tammy Bond. Tammy Bond is an environmental engineer working at the interface of engineering and public policy to unravel the global effects of black carbon emissions on climate and human health and to comprehensively understand how energy interfaces with the atmosphere. Bond's goal is an integrated global framework, including standardization of how observations of black carbon emissions are made and interpreted, how inventories and impacts are quantified and classified, and incorporation of this information into global global climate models, Tammy Bond, Urbana, Illinois. 
John Hennenberger. John Hennenberger is an advocate for fair and affordable housing who has created a new paradigm for post-disaster rebuilding. The devastating impact of Hurricane Katrina exposed the failure of federal, state, and local governments to adequately respond to the needs of the poor and of persons with disabilities. Widely respected across the broad spectrum of stakeholders, Hennenberger is working to define new standards for fair housing projects and affordable housings. John Hennenberger, Austin, Texas. All right. Those are your three. Tammy Bond, soot researcher, John Hennenberger, guy who wants you to live in fair housing, Paul Basha, will take to the eyes and then your brain, who is the fake MacArthur Fellow. It's the eye guy. How do you know? I don't think anyone named a hospital Western Eye Hospital in London. And the answer is, you are correct. Oh my God! (laughs) However, there is a Western Eye Hospital in West London. And it's an ophthalmology hospital in West London. Okay. Also, I have to say that the reason that I named this guy Paul Basha and referenced Bowling Green, Kentucky and the Western Eye Hospital was it was based on a combination of Rand Paul and Bashir al-Assad, the dictator of Syria, who are both ophthalmologists, Rand Paul from Bowling Green, Kentucky, and Bashir al-Assad, who trained at Western Eye Hospital, London, England. Okay, but there there must have been other tells. There must yeah, something else was working on on a more subtle level. Yeah, yeah. All right. Maybe you lucked into that one. All right. Here's the next, the last and final round. Are you ready? Tara Zara. Tara Zara is a historian who is challenging the way we view the development of the concepts of nation, family, and ethnicity, and painting a more integrative picture of 20th century European history. With conceptual and empirical rigor, Zara's writings combine broad socio-historical analysis with extensive archival work across a wide range of locales. Tara Zara, Chicago, Illinois. Enrique Guzman. Enrique Guzman is a master artist slash or dash cooper who handles wooden slats with aplomb. With a thorough self-taught grasp of the ancient tradition of barrel making, Guzman celebrates the history of his craft but is not bound by it. Ranging in scale from small geometrically exquisite urns to sprawling outdoor installations, his broad body of work includes both functional objects and impressionistic creations which subtly comment on concepts of containment, flow, and abundance. Issuing gaskets or sealants, Guzman's barrels touch viewers on multiple levels, their fusion of form and function, their relationship to a community of users, and their materials, history of use. Enrique Guzman, Iowa City, Iowa. Joshua Oppenheimer. Joshua Oppenheimer is a documentary filmmaker illuminating the social, psychological, and emotional dimensions of controversial subjects in works that redefine the dynamic between filmmaker and subject, film and audience, through a unique mode of filmmaking that mixes the real and the invented. He is challenging the modern aesthetic of contemporary documentary cinema in both intimacy of focus and visual construct. Joshua Oppenheimer, Copenhagen. And and the last one. There's going to be four this round. Are you ready? Wow, that's, this makes no sense, the three and then the four. It's okay. Okay. Are you ready yeah, for the yeah, fourth yeah. one? All right. Yeah, let's go. Top Cat. 
Top Cat is a cartoon cat investigating modalities of feline-human interaction in an urban setting. Along with collaborators Fancy Fancy Spook, Benny the Ball, Brain, and Choo Choo, TC, as his good friends call him, is exploring synergies along the human-to-feline continuum with the hope of emphasizing a hierarchical clan structure with himself as the boss, the pip, or the championship, and challenging the supremacy of stern authority figures like Officer Dibble, Top Cat, New York City. All right. Can you spot the faux fellow forthwith? Who do you think it was? I was so sure it was Guzman until you whipped Top Cat out. Is it Top Cat? It's Top Cat. But it's also Guzman. I made them both up. Yeah. I think if you were a barrel maker in Iowa City, Iowa, people would be like, oh, that's a nice barrel. Can I put it to use? If you're a barrel maker in New York City, that'd be a little more believable. People would be like, oh, what's this magical So I totally screwed it up by randomly assigning Iowa City, Iowa to him. Yeah. And the reason I chose Iowa City, Iowa is because I was looking at past fellows and which ones were in the crafts department. And there was like a a book or a typeface guy from Iowa City, Iowa. And I'm like, I'm going to go with it. So you keep getting it right for crazy wrong reasons. So, Mike, what would you do if uh, you were made a MacArthur Fellow one day? I would uh, challenge the supremacy of Officer Dibble. Good calling. I would eat. I would. I would steal uh, construction workers' lunch pails uh, with a fishing rod and tuck a napkin into my chin and enjoy a meal. So that's a good thing to do with all that money. Yeah. This has been find the foe fellow forthwith. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is producer of Slate Podcasts, including this one, The Gist. She has noted that a voice actor named Leo DeLion provided voices for both Spook and Brain in the cartoon Top Cat. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He further informs us that Leo DeLion was born Irvin Levin in Patterson, New Jersey. Also, we are on Yo. You get the app Yo. You subscribe to the thing called Podcast. And when the show is ready, you'll get a Yo. Another way to find out when the show is ready is go to slate.com slash gist email. And then you can sign up for our email. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. And our Twitter feed is slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. I have invented the Leo DeLion cartoon voiceover name generator. Just enter both real name genre of cartoon and it spits out a voiceover name all right here i'm going to test it out max schiller a cartoon about a haunted school bus rubsy tires am i right thanks for listening